welcome to another episode of Whiskey, Web, and Whatnot. Uh, I'm your host, Charles William Carpenter III, and joining me as always is Robert William Wagner. The third also? No, just the first. <laughs> no, Okay, first. we'll call him Robbie. <laughs> and our guest today is Jen Weber. Hi, Jen. Thanks for joining. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, for those who don't know of Jen, there's probably a lot of people that do because most of the people we've interviewed or have listeners of our Ember fans. But uh, Jen, if you want to give a quick little intro, like, you know, who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. My name is Jen Weber. My pronouns are she and they, and I love writing code for the web. I've spent a significant part of my career working um, within the Ember ecosystem, and I help out with a lot of the learning resources that are associated with that. So like, you know, public website, docs, um, communicating between different groups of people to make sure that the docs are what they should be, uh, things like that. Nice. Well, before we get into stuff, I always try to go to things, but we need to start the whiskey first. Yeah, we got to start with whiskey. So Um, uh, today, um, and I believe you selected this one, Jen. I don't know. I have so many lately. I forget. I suggested some some tasting notes that I enjoy. And uh, this was selected by Robbie. I'm very, very excited. This is Belfour bourbon. And this particular one is finished with Texas pecan wood. Uh, what I read about it is they just put some staves in the barrel and then let it age for a little bit longer. Sounds a lot like Maker's 46. Um, it is 46% or 92 proof. Uh, the mash bill is 60% corn, 30% wheat, and 10% malted barley. So that's like an interesting one. Feels like it could end up being kind of sweet. Yeah. It smells interesting. It smells awesome. Is it pecan or pecan? Pecan pie. A pecan is what you use to go to the bathroom at night when you want to get up. <laughs> nice. I was thinking more. Of, yeah. Well, I was thinking um, in uh, Harry Met Sally when they were talking about pecan pie, pecan pie. Okay. Sorry. guess I'm the only one that saw that. <laughs> it's a wonderful love story. <laughs> Before I taste it, I should smell it. I'm going to say... Little maple syrup smell, maybe then. Yeah, pancake syrup. That's kind of what I was hoping for. <laughs> the the my the things that I suggested that I really like. There's a maple whiskey that I especially enjoy. That I don't think they sell in Massachusetts. So sometimes if I'm headed up the interstate through New Hampshire or Vermont, I'll try to pick some up. And um, so I this is like a, a nod in that direction. I really like. This. Yeah, I think so. I'm getting a little vanilla-y, syrupy in the beginning. I can't say apricots because Robbie has banned me from that <laughs> descriptor. Uh, but like banana, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, like the smell of banana leaves, but more like a banana-y taste. Banoffee. I don't know. I'm making it up. No, I could see that. Mm. There's some fruity, some fruity tones there. Yeah, a little bit... Um. I would say bananas fostery kind of. Yeah. Like there we go. Caramelized yes. banana. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's desserty for sure. With a little with a little hug. Mm-hmm. Even though the proof is a little lower than some that we have, burn. but it's got a yeah, it's got some burn. You feel it. Um this isn't like drinking water, which is I think pleasant about <laughs> I wanna I wanna know you're there. A little knock on the chest. So 
what are y'all's opinions on adding things to the whiskey? Forbidden? Fine. You know, this with a little bit of unfiltered apple cider? Mm -hmm. That'd be pretty nice. I, I mean, for myself personally, I don't tend to add things. I, um, not even really ice, but sometimes I'll do like a few drops of water just to like see how that changes it. Um, but I'm also like an advocate of, uh, it's not up to me to tell you how you like it. So if that's the way you like it, then you should roll with it. This isn't some kind of trophy. It's alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I used to always do a huge, either like a really big ice cube or like crushed ice. And Chuck would give me a lot of shit for doing that. Um, but yeah, you know, I like what I like and I wouldn't mind some cider in it either. You know, that sounds pretty tasty. Yeah, I could see it. Did you have one of those spherical ice molds? Because I've always been slightly tempted by those at the home goods stores. I have like the little cheap rubber ones. I have those, but they um they make really cloudy ice. Mm-hmm. So my new thing is like I bought this thing from Amazon that I still haven't tried that is supposed to like, I don't know. It's like this styrofoam block that you like put the thing of like the ice cube tray in and it makes like clearer ice or something. So I'm going to have to try it and see how that works. Yeah. I, uh, I was told that if you use distilled water or if you use boiling water, I've tried all the things and it still isn't clear ice. So I don't know what the trick is, but apparently if you just pay more money to make them, then (laughs) they get clearer. So you let me know if that's effective, but that's what I hear. Yeah, it's something about the freezing process. It like mimics nature. So it's like a pond freezing or something. And I don't know, freezes better and clearer. Mm. Okay. Maybe there's something to that. We'll see. Can't disagree with the science, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, All righty. So, yeah, we, I think we should rate the whiskey. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So, Jen, yes, we, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with our system. It is one to eight tentacles, one being the worst, eight being the greatest. It's all very subjective. Doesn't matter if this is your first or hundredth whiskey. It's just like, do you like it? How does it compare to other things that you do like or don't like? And then give her a swing. All right. Sounds good. I think for me, this is a seven because if it wasn't in my cabinet, I wouldn't be super sad. I love to try new things all the time. You know, I've got a few mainstays, but uh, if I open it up there one Friday afternoon and then said, hmm, well, I have a drink of and I see this here, I'll be very happy. Seems like a fairly glowing review. Yes. Yeah. I feel like I tend to give a lot of things like a six, but I think it's about a six. (laughs) Like it has to be something that I don't like about it to kind of go below that really. Like if it, if I would drink it again, if it's pretty good, but it's not like the best thing I've ever had, it's usually around yeah six. So yeah. If you're not like, wow, all my friends should get this kind of thing. Then it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to like ever say there would be an eight. Like what is the perfect one? You know? I mean, like Jen said, even like you didn't even have anything negative to say about the whiskey. You just said, you're like happy to have it, but if it wasn't there, you'd be okay because you know, you try something else. So like, what's it take to get an eight? When would you be sad that it's not in your cabinet? Yeah. It's hard to say. So yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, like a six. Like, I think that this is unique. Um, it's tasty. 
it's something I could have a couple of. It doesn't like necessarily rank where like I must have this one versus something else, though. Uh, some other ones that we do like uh, or mainstays. I do believe it was like a little pricier, too, which is probably one of the other things that would be like, oh, I enjoyed having it. I'm not sure I'd spend. I don't know. I think it was like $80 or something again. Um, I could be wrong. I don't remember the price exactly, but I feel like it was a little higher, too. And that always kind of factors in for me. Like, you know, this probably would have wowed me at 50 bucks, pretty, you know, and I would say, yeah, I would definitely come back to this more at 80. It's like, yeah, it was good. But now at that price point, maybe I want to try something else. Six it is. Yeah, I think for me, like like an eight would be there'd be an, an emotional connection, a memory, you know, and like repeat like a few different uh, good memories there. Like, you know, sitting around a campfire, having some friends over that that sort of like story starts to bring things higher yeah, up indeed. for me. So, you know, potential, potential to grow with time. You could take this to like a campfire set up and pass it around. And I think most people would be pretty happy with it. So that's another another bonus there. All right. So since I'm taking over the role of Robbie today, um, I'll uh, get started with um, more about you. And how did you get into Ember? What was your start into Ember? Yeah, sure. So I was a coding bootcamp grad, and they taught us Ember in the coding bootcamp as a way to build our understanding that like good coding often follows certain patterns. And there's lots of different terminology. There's tons of blog articles written about what all those different patterns are. And some of them are just kind of like baked into Ember. You know, they really wanted us to have a good understanding of like what it means that something has a data model, for example. And then I got my first job at a company that was using Ember, first job in coding anyway, at a company that was using Ember. And I was mostly working on the front end by myself quite a bit. And the community became kind of my lifeline for figuring out how to do tricky things that were outside of what I had already learned so far, that were outside of the intro guides and tutorials. So I spent a lot of time building my knowledge with the help of other people and building those relationships that really helped me uh, grow my own skills in such a big way. And it introduced me as well to other people who are part of the project leadership. Um, so I participated in open source now for like, I don't know, over six years, maybe kind of started as a way to survive and do, you know, get code done and, over time, it turned into the way that I've like, continued to grow my career. Like I pair with other people who have more experience than me in different areas. I get to work on challenges at my own pace and occasionally get to listen into those bigger conversations. How do you architect something for an entire framework? How do you make decisions about what direction an API should go when it um, affects so many different people? And that was really a big accelerator for my career. Yeah, that's great. That's interesting, though. It's the second time we've heard recently that someone uh, learned Ember in an accelerator, um, which is great because you don't really hear about that very often. These days, it feels like 99% of them definitely are all teaching React, skipping a lot of JavaScript fundamentals, and then kind of tossing people directly into a very specific career path and, and job. Um, but then, you know, growth is hard and we know that 
community is a little bit disjointed depending. Uh, and then, so you just have to be lucky to like get in with a good team uh, at the job that, that you get or not. And so you having that experience in being able to like learn that holistic fr uh, framework versus library, and then also falling into the community at a great time, I'm sure was like wonderful for like getting started and being able to like lean outside of your company too, to like get, get things done and learn stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I think a it's reasonable for a lot of boot camps to do things like teach react. I mean, if you look at the job postings, that's what it says there is. And if someone's listening who learned react in their boot camp, like don't sweat it. It's fine. You're on like a learning journey. Right. But it also means like, you know, I think about my path. It's not that common to get involved in the open source side of things. And like people ask me like, how can I advance, you know, my career? And I'm like, Oh, well, I mean, I hesitate sometimes to say like work in open source because it's like unpaid on your own time, you know, like that was how I did it. It benefited me hugely, but also like I'm interested in finding out other people's pathways to being successful, to growing their skills, to reaching more senior engineering levels than like just this one meandering way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to, uh, you know, uh, choose your own adventure through that. I think maybe like, attitude and interest and passion have a lot to play with into that into success there at least and and growth and uh, and then you sort of find a way along with that yeah for sure you know for me being an open source for so long i feel like that's been super helpful for you know learning to level up my skills and stuff but yeah i mean i i remember i know a lot of people that i've worked with in the past were strictly like nine to five. Like they didn't want to think about code after work. They didn't want to do any open source. And and I respect and, and totally get that because, you know, I have much less of a life than myself or my wife would like. Um, but, you know, it's some people uh, just aren't called to to do that. And, you know, I think there's there's definitely a lot of ways to to get to that end result of leveling up and, and learning things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just think that like you need opportunity to explore how things are made, to try and contribute to making things more and a wide berth of those things. And then to be potentially mentored to some degree. And maybe some people are lucky enough to just get that in, in their regular job. And that's great, but it's just not always the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And like another when I think about, you know, what are some other accelerators for me, I would say I worked at a startup as my first um, job out of a boot camp. I worked on all the different things. You know, when you're on a really small team that's building the product from, you know, beginning to end, there's a lot of opportunities. You know, you, you work in things like, oh, what's the, you know, server configuration look like? How do we manage those instances all the way to, how do I choose a UI library that's going to help me build things out quickly enough, but it isn't going to immediately look like it all came out of the box because clients want to see something new and special, right? And so you, you grapple with these very big problems. You grapple with this wide spectrum of work. And that too can kind of help inform this like more mature overview of how do we build software. You know, contrast that with someone who gets their bootcamp you know, right out of their boot camp or degree or whatever self-taught their first entry level role is at like an established stable company where like somebody <laughs> writes up 
nice tickets for them. Like, how cool. That's amazing. But also, how do you like still find those points of acceleration if that's something, you know, that somebody wants? Yeah, it's interesting. I I think it's worth having both experiences just to contrast like your own best working environment too. And, you know, not everybody wants to understand the end to end process too. And, you know, people can be happy in a lane, I guess. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But then when you have more organization on the other side, you might find engineers who like uh, find themselves interested in other roles supporting projects like, oh, project manager, I want to do scrum mastering. I want to do, you know, more like structured roles like that too. So yeah, there really is like a grab bag of opportunities and ways to get there. Yeah. I think for me, the, uh, the common themes for like leveling up, I guess, were being allowed to fail. So like if you have room for experimentation and like, you know, you could try a different framework or they basically give you, you know, you have this feature and we don't care how you do it, what you use, like we trust you get, you know, do whatever you think is best. Um, that definitely levels you up. And then also like being able to mentor other people. So, you know, even if you're not doing open source stuff, if you have some more junior people on your teams at, at work or whatever, you can, you know, take a more active role in helping them, you know, make them feel comfortable coming to you to ask questions and things. And that will help both of you, you know, get a lot better. Yeah, it's interesting. So we were touching on this briefly, Jen, before we started recording and this whole leveling up and like defining where you are in your career path and kind of where you want to go and and how arbitrary sometimes it can be in our field, like who's a junior, who's a mid, who's a mid, who's a senior, what's a senior to a staff or a staff plus or a senior staff or a principal or an architect. And the way those definitions tend to get defined by like HR departments or some people, somebody making it up on the fly. And is it time related? What are the specific challenges should you have actually like mastered and gone through before you become come into that role? It's a really, it's just kind of feels like the wild West right now. And I think it's top of mind for me, at least because in the last few months we've had to like try and define our own small career ladder, you know, we're a small agency, but people work for us and they want to know how they're progressing and they want feedback in a meaningful way and a path and all of that. So like, okay, how do you say someone is mid-level? How do you say someone is senior or, and what is that? You know, can't say like, well, it has to be 10 years. Definitely not in our industry right now. People are getting it in five years and less, but does that mean like they've actually a just because they have a title and a salary, does it match what someone else who's had like just maybe diversity and experience over a different amount of time? Yeah, that's something I've been trying to explore a little bit. Like, is it possible to make a checklist of things that don't get you, you know, no guarantees doing these things, these activities, reading these articles, they don't get you necessary to a specific endpoint, but they get you like steps along that road, maybe steps to the left, steps to the right sometimes. And if we were to try to say what some of those things are, like what would they be? So like one that comes to mind for me is like API design, right? Like I think about as someone progresses in their career, depending on what kind of area of focus they've chosen, like, you know, I like to be able to say like, hey, I'm thinking of 
writing this endpoint this way. These are the params. Here's how I, here's why I chose them. And like getting a critique from that, that is based a little bit in experience and based in a little bit in reading and reaching outside of one's own sp- sphere of experience. You know, how, what would you read? What would you look at? What would you do as an exercise? And like, not everybody has the opportunity to do like API design, uh, depending on the size of their company or like the type of product they're working on. You know, like then other ones that come to mind is like mentoring, teaching. You know, if you're on a small team where everyone's kind of a similar experience level as you or they're more experienced than you, what would it look like to sharpen some of those mentorship and teaching skills within that role, within that day job, without having to step out and start taking up some of your free time. So I've been trying to actually write that list down. I've got like 50 things so far that I've come up with. At first, it was going to be like a list of like 10 things, like, oh, here's 10 things you can study. And the more I kept like going through my daily routines, the more I kept noticing other stuff. But then is this just kind of like a bucket of miscellaneous things? Are those actually important steps of growth? Like, Right. I'm not sure. I know because those could be, you know, I'm sure there's a certain number of those on that list that are like unique to you and your experience and mm-hmm. makes you a unique expert in your area. And that's great because that makes you more valuable in that way. But like in general, is that what someone needs to you know achieve particular success or recognition just in general as like to be a senior engineer? These things are covered. I can count on that. It's interesting. I've actually thought about the idea of like trade groups and trade unions and all that kind of stuff. Like, would it be interesting if there was like an organization of certification or something like if someone's an architect, right? There's an architect's license or whatever that you get in the state. And there's certain things that everyone agrees that you need to know and understand. But then you get to design buildings on top of that, like there was some kind of like unified and agreed upon standard of certification. Well, they have, um, it's not super applicable to necessarily web development or front end development, but like software engineering in general, like engineering has like PEs, like professional engineering, I think is what that is or whatever. Um, and like, if you're a civil engineer or something, most States you can like do that and get certified. I think there's only like two that will do it for computer science right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's su- not super applicable if you like went through a boot camp necessarily or like don't want to learn the computer science fundamentals. But like, you know, something like that does exist. So how can we extend that to like other corners of the programming sphere? Right. Like you're not writing languages at the metal for, high, you know, a bank or something doing something different. So the standards are different. Doesn't you know make it less important or difficult, but yeah. There was some chatter. I don't know. This was like a couple of years ago, probably mostly on Twitter was where I saw it about the need for some sort of ethical standards and certification group as well, you know, and for, for there to be like some sort of code that has to be followed um, when doing things like especially working with machine learning, AI, cloud-based stuff, you know, protecting the privacy, user data, things like that. And like if there was a group like that, then that would give that group a little bit of power to be able to say, ooh, you know, I don't know about this 
thing that's on the product roadmap and actually be able to point to something else that isn't their own opinions um, in order to back up like making changes, making iterations and, and creating like more, you know, people centric software that pe- that benefits people. I don't know if that's gone anywhere, but I've that's always a little bit in the back of my mind, more so than even a technical certification. That's certainly helpful as well. Yeah, I think that would be an equally valuable set of like learnings and being able to prove that like I've gone through this and it's it's better than being scrum certified for sure. I know how to create ethical software like. Yeah. And handle data with care. You know, Yeah, that seems like that would be a highly valuable skill. Selling that to businesses may be different, but from our side, from the creator side, I definitely see that. Mm-hmm. Um, can we put that on the blockchain somehow? <laughs> I mean, you can save any data you want to the blockchain. Uh... When you get certified, we'll, we'll put it on the blockchain. But I think you could sell this to businesses because like, perfect. you know, us, for example, we have hefty insurance policies for like, you know, doing things ethically and not losing data and like all that. So like if there was a certification or something where it like allowed you to get price breaks on your insurance or something like, you know, I think something like that could be a path that would make companies interested. That's really interesting. That reminds me of like, I had to do this online course once for, uh, (laughs) I got a discount on my car insurance by watching this like two hour recorded PowerPoint. And you know, if that works, I mean, insurance companies must have studied the math that this is actually helpful, or I don't think they would have been doing it. If that works, maybe something else along those lines has a chance. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not something I've ever really considered, but it makes a lot of sense, actually. Like, just to kind of bring it right back around, you know, how does someone learn to handle data with care? How does somebody learn to be that person who's watching out for problems along the line? What are the types of things that they would read? Yeah. It's a it's a challenge, you know, to a certain extent. The A lot of the things I know are a conglomeration of I've paired with other people who are already knowledgeable, very knowledgeable in these areas. And that's like hugely important. And then I've been to a zillion conference talks. I've watched so many YouTube videos and it's just sort of like, a, you know, an, a, a, an amorphous body of knowledge in my head. I can't even point anymore to like, which talk was it where I learned this or that aspect of things. And again, that's like a huge time investment. Is there something more targeted than go telling somebody like, oh, go watch a hundred YouTube videos. You need to like have the place where that's collected. Um, So there you go. You may be putting that collection together. That'd be an interesting project. I wanted to like add one thing because I will forget because I do that. I think the third thing that you would need aside from like having good mentor opportunities, obviously multiple exposure to it through articles and whatnot to start to learn that it's the right thing. And then third, I think having opportunities to make the mistakes to fuck up and not handle data with care and then know, okay, this is the repercussion of that. And now I know, right. So sandboxes to experiment with or whatever it is, but nothing like dropping a production database to make you learn, make some mistakes to do that again. You know, like those experiences are super valuable like you might lose your job, but you, you'll learn from it. So. 
right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's fingers to point on all sides, but any place that FTPs their site in place, you know, it's not gonna not gonna go well. Mm-hmm. For projects in school, we use Dropbox with no Git. Really, like we would just have oh. people pushing files to it, and like you would have conflicts, and it would be bad. Well, all I can say is that when I had to go <laughs> to school with no shoes on uphill in the snow. We would just either Dreamweaver FTP stuff up or um, there's like a CyberDuck or other like FTP programs where you would just like push your files up changes at times. That kind of plays in a little bit like to what I'm wondering, though, is like if you, let's say, theoretically dropped a database and that, wow, what a horrible experience to have to go through, like. Can someone be guided through this process without having this like gut wrenching terror of having done something super seriously wrong? Um, And so like what I'm kind of thinking about is can somebody not make those huge mistakes and instead be taught up front? Like, how do you evaluate what is risky? How do you know when to pull somebody else in? to look over your shoulder, can we like get the lesson without actually making the terrible mistake? You know, can someone get a like great breadth of knowledge without being personally responsible for everything from start to finish? Like that's kind of what I'm getting at with, um, you know, wondering how to, how do, how do you get people to level up? Like all of these things play an important role, but I'd be sad to say like, <laughs> oh yeah, you just got to like make massive mistakes and suffer through them. Right. And then you can be like these other special group of engineers. Yeah, right? right. Well, not suffer through it. I think that's the key. I think that you touch on something there. I think like as an industry, culturally, we've made massive strides uh, into making people feel more comfortable in asking questions and reaching out. And even if a mistake is made saying this mistake was made, how do I fix it? Can people help me? Or, mm-hmm. you know, onboarding is better, things like that. Cause I can just remember when times were like, it was, oh, you didn't want to be the idiot in the room. And if you asked a stupid question, someone would say, read RTFM, read the manual. Did you check that? It's a simple thing there. You know, then it was like that kind of snarky backplay, but that's not really the experience that I find anymore. And it's like frowned upon if you act, behave in that way and that you're not a good team player and it's more about like doesn't hurt you to help someone else kind of thing so then i conversely i think that's another way to level up is that a good way to do that i've always said is like once you feel feel like or find that you may be the smartest person in the room then change rooms Hmm. switch that up and then now you're in a place where you're challenged and you're forced in like oh great i've got like access to all of this all these great people i can ask questions from and figure out to do how to do what they're doing and then continue to grow in that way. I really like that. That's great framing. I feel like it's very hard to really put your finger on exactly when you're a senior engineer, because I know for at least like the first five years of my career, I would, you know, go to work and just be like, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing like all day long. And then like something just happens at some point and you just know stuff and like, you don't have to like ask people as many questions and you're like more comfortable debugging. And it, it wasn't like I looked at any specific 
resource or like did any had any specific experience that got me there i just kind of realized one day like oh wow like i think i'm maybe a senior engineer <laughs> like i understand these things um so yeah i mean writing down criteria i think is the first step yeah i think like when you go from asking more mm. questions to being asked more yeah. questions possibly is a little bit of a time yeah i'd say like comfort with ambiguity like having an undefined problem having a short list of open questions where you know 10 more open questions are lurking that you just haven't you know we haven't been written down yet um and being able to like choose the next step forward i think is another another piece here like to a certain extent there's like a there's like a very common line of questioning that you can follow but like you know, like we can say things like, okay, like what's the goal? What are the things that we know today? What are the things that we still need to research? Who do we bring into the room? You know, you can kind of walk through this whole formula, but then when it actually comes to like finding what those open questions are, you kind of like need some little edge of expertise to kind of shine a light into the unknown unknowns of a project. Yeah. I think in general, how I would frame that is in, well, for myself, at least, like I there's a ton of things I don't know, but I feel very confident that I can find the answers yeah. and figure it out. And I think maybe that's a difference. Yeah, it's more about confidence than actual skill level. <laughs> well, I don't know if I agree about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not necessarily I could so. play at confidence uh, right. any time. And that would if I if I did so, that would lead everyone astray. Uh, there's also some people I've met who are never going to feel confident ever. They're amazing engineers. They know a lot. It's just like not in their yeah. bones. <laughs> you know, it's just not in their personality either. Um, but I do think it manifests for some people as like that day when you say to yourself like, oh, yeah, hmm, that's a weird problem. Well, we can we can figure this out. Yeah, I got this. I've been down this road a couple of times, so I'm good. Yeah. And it's interesting because senior can be a blanket senior and above, we'll just say in general. Um, And it's just highly subjective to the person who's looking to hire that position, Mm -hmm. really, because you can be senior over here and, you know, maybe you're like staff plus over here. But because based on applicable personality traits or things that you've solved and you're able to like speak to, And over there, you're like, wow, you're amazing. You've done a bunch of these things. You're super high on our chart. But then somewhere else altogether, you may be much lower than you you expected. And maybe it requires like, like you said, there's people that don't have the confidence and uh, extroverted personality potentially or something. And there are some roles where that kind of engagement with your customer is required, maybe in a like smaller startup, you're going to actually like be engaging with your users a bit more directly. And that is something that some people would be like, Oh no, can't do that. And that could inhibit your career in that particular like definition of what that is. So that's just, I guess that's like the biggest problem I have with this in general is that it just feels like to a particular point, it starts to become highly subjective and it's hard to say, Mm -hmm. are you, I mean, I don't know. Like, like Jimmy said, are you experienced? That's all we know. Yeah. That's kind of why I've been trying to think more about like, what are some steps that are emotion in the general right direction, you know? So if somebody 
says, oh, how do I, how do I level up? It's, it's, it's maybe some selection of this giant lineup. Like that's why there's 50 items on the list. It's not because you have to do like 50 of these things. This is, I mean, my personal list, of course, but like somebody doesn't doing all of those things isn't like a requirement at all. It's just like these might help. They might not. They might resonate with you. They might not. And then like the big question of specialization comes up, right? Like if someone is an expert in the front end, are they going to be seen as like experience? Are they going to be seen as a senior level um, without having, you know, more of the like backend experience or database experience? And again, that also varies so hugely from company to company, from product to product that like we can't really predict it, but like hopefully someone can kind of start to pick through and see for themselves, like, all right, at least these things seem interesting to me and like chase those. Yeah. I think that's a big problem in our industry too, is like, you know, say you need an expert in, I don't know, let's pick something pretty like Astro is pretty new. Right. So like I need a senior Astro developer. Okay. It came out like a year or two ago. Right. Like how old even, I don't even know how old it is, but like so what does that mean? Do you want someone with like five years of JavaScript experience? Like, do they, should they be a senior general developer or senior in that technology? And like, depending on your hiring needs and your project, it could go either way. And I think the thing I would like to see a lot more of is people trusting that people with a few years of experience can learn anything, just hire them. Like, that's the problem we have with Ember is like companies don't want to use it because they can't hire for it. And I'm like, well, you can, you can hire a good engineer that's experienced in anything else and teach the member, but they don't want to. So like that's applicable to all technologies. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I got into starting with this, but um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, like, you know, if we think of ourselves, you know, I often say like, oh, I'm, a, you know, I'm an Ember developer or whatever is a convenient shorthand. Um, but ultimately the f- like foundational skills and HTML, CSS, JavaScript, um, how to put together a maintainable app is like highly transferable. And so would somebody else coming in from a different framework, highly transferable. You know, we're kind of solving a lot of the same problems over and over again, unless you're really working on like some of the, you know, cutting edge stuff. The majority of things on the web are like, it's a form and it's a page that shows you things that were from that form. Yep. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Most of the time. Input, output, delete. Yeah. Comes yeah. in different shapes, sizes, flavors, user yeah. flows. But, you know, it's there's it's like a circle. It was a cycle. The problem I was having, though, is you know, I was looking all through the Ember documentation. and I could not find the stuff on hooks. Like, <laughs> how, how do I use hooks in Ember? Just... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you'd have to go to the uh, Ember for React developers blog post for that. Oh, yeah, I actually remember uh, reading that. That was really good. That was cool, actually. Nullvox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was cool. That was interesting uh, and very applicable, I think, giving the context there. There was like a similar article. Oh, yeah, it was like 24 days to rust using node development like from node to rust in 24 days or something like that which was really Mm -hmm. interesting too 
I like that. Like take the context and then show it's the same thing. It's the same idea. This is how it's expressed. And this is how it's expressed. Taking this to the far extreme edge. I have always wanted to try and create something that is like web development for Excel people. Like that, you know, you write formulas, you input data, you it's represented as like a table that you can see in front of you instead of like a hash or something or an array. It's like the concepts are, the concepts are there. It could be interesting. I don't know how many people care to make that leap, but <laughs> like I know that like, you know, I learned Excel and spreadsheets and things as a kid, I think, like teenager maybe. There was, I was really, really, really into like academics and making sure I knew what my grade was <laughs> mm-hmm. and <laughs> calculating it is like kind of difficult. So like, I was like, I don't know how I'm doing in this class, dad. I'm like so worried. And he's like, we'll put it into a spreadsheet. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and he showed me. And then in college, I like used it to like calculate my GPA. That time it actually did matter mm. because, you know, you drop below a certain GPA, bad things start to happen to you. <laughs> um, and so uh, like some of the same stuff is there. I had little tiny connections. There are functions. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's Could be true. Interesting. Could be. Yeah. Um, our childhood was very different. Yeah. You're using stone <laughs> tablets and to write everything down, Chuck. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, still, actually, I don't even know how we're recording this. Are you, you guys should get out of this box. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, you know, since Microsoft owns all of JavaScript and Excel, they could probably spend the resources to make a class like that. <laughs> I mean, there's probably already something out there too, but um, I, you know, I haven't looked seriously into it, but I, I kind of bring it up as an example of like, we have these same patterns, these same problems we keep solving. And like some of that stuff is transferable. So yeah, like I don't sweat it with switching between technologies, like could figure it out. Indeed. Yeah. And there's certain mistakes as well. I mean, again, you know, it's nice. We can get by without making mistakes. There's certain mistakes that, like, don't matter which framework you make it in. You know, if you, like, misunderstand what the HTML hierarchy of a page is supposed to be, you can you can make that mistake in any front-end framework mm-hmm. that you want. Um, and once you've learned from it, you can bring it into something else. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering... You're very passionate about technology, obviously, and about empowering those around you and everything else. What I'm going to I'm going to dip into some whatnot now. I'm curious what other hobbies you may have aside from spreadsheets. Aside from spreadsheets. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't consider spreadsheets one of my hobbies these days. Um, So I enjoy making things. So like, for example, I made like a hand carved handle for something the other day. I like painting, I paint miniatures. I play a lot of video games and I must admit during the past two years of being spending a lot of time at home, I've made a lot of things in Minecraft. Nice. So um, some to a certain extent, like I get to have a little bit of that joy of making something uh, within the code side. I think that's like kind of what really makes it be something that I can 
imagine doing, you know, five days a week and like little stuff, fixing things. I don't know. I I love it. That's kind of how I end up spending a lot of my free time. Yeah. Fixing stuff is like very gratifying. Oh yeah. Fixing stuff or like, I don't know, some kind of like more manual labor. I find very Mm -hmm. gratifying because it's like a slight mental disconnect or just like a different focus. I'm here doing this thing, must fix whatever this is. It's great when my kids break toys. It's like, daddy fixed this. Perfect. I'm going to the garage. I'll see you guys in 30 minutes. (laughs) I'm going to go have a meditation out here. My most fabulous repair. The one I'm most proud of was that we had a Nintendo Wii that just showed a blank screen when you plugged it in. And I was determined to revive it because I wanted to play Mario Kart with my friends. We had like rented this like, you know, lodge type thing. And um, this was before the Switch came out. And I, through a series of Googling rabbit holes, narrowed it down to like that the problem was almost certainly hardware and there were two different parts and replacing one or both of them might fix it. And so I took a gamble and I I ordered one of two of those things. And there are so many screws inside the Nintendo Wii. I think I had like eight left over and that is not normal. (laughs) I was very careful to lay everything out in a little grid. I had like a drawing and I still didn't get there. Mm. And the moment when I plugged it in, I was like, let's see if it works, was one of the times of greatest suspense I've ever had in my entire life. (laughs) And it worked. I was so happy. And we only played Mario Kart for like an hour. And then I don't think it really got turned on again since that uh, weekend. But like (laughs) very fun. Definitely would do it again. But it's not a break. So that's great. Yeah. 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 I've only changed a couple of hard drives on some PlayStation. So and that was enough for me, like getting deep in there. I don't know. Did you end up getting a switch? Is that why your Wii died? Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Have moved on to other things. I did take apart. I've taken apart a great number of controllers in my life as well. Some with greater success than others. Yeah, I failed on some switch controllers. I like warm mine out early on and they hadn't started the like replacement program yet or something. So I was like, Oh, there's some DIY kit. No, it didn't work out. So, and then I bought some used ones and then they died. And then, yeah. The cycle continues. It does. I've moved on to, I don't game too much, but I have like shown a lot more interest in it and bought some games that I haven't spent enough time on. So Stadia has been very fulfilling for me. Like, Oh, it's cool. I can play it on like any device. And so it kind of moves with you and get some, I don't know, the, the, the connectivity issue hasn't been a big deal. And then we've done some Oculus stuff. Ooh, that's kind of fun. That's cool. Yeah. I thought it was pretty interesting. Fighting Darth Vader. I mean, that was very satisfying. I, I just avoid the horror games. It's a little much for me. Mm-hmm. I like to have like zombies jump out of you. I'm like, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. I saw there's like a Blair Witch game and I'm like, nope, that's not happening. <laughs> I played Skyrim in VR for a bit. And in, for anyone who hasn't played Skyrim, as you go on your adventures, you can make some friends basically and like enlist them to come with you on adventures. And I didn't really do that when I played it all through the, for the first time way back in the day. 
just sound like regular PC. But in VR, I absolutely brought them with me on my adventures because if there was a monster within range, the uh, buddy would like take their sword out. And so it meant that no zombies or spiders could secretly jump up behind me while I was playing VR. I would at least hear the warning noise. Yeah, that's that's a pro tip. That's pretty good. I loved that game. I actually played it for the first time on Switch and then played it forever and became whatever. I don't know, the assassin and the werewolf and all this other stuff. And that was really fun. It came out on my 21st birthday, I think so. I got it that day, like I stayed up till midnight, went and got it and played it a bunch. And I, I never played the main story. I always do like the Thieves Guild and like all the side stuff. And then it's like, eh, I don't care about like beating the game. And I stopped playing. <laughs> Fighting dragons and riding dragons, though, is pretty awesome. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And also, so your 21st, so your 21st birthday is so like two, three years ago. No, I think it's been around a little bit longer than that. Wow, the other palindrome. It's interesting. We're really like jazzed about that. Very excited. Yeah, did you y'all celebrate Tuesday? No. Just with tacos, like most Tuesdays. We do Taco tu- Taco Tuesday, Pizza Friday. Real basic yeah. like that. We've started doing that too. Not upset over it though. Because it just makes it easier. You're not to think about yep. what's for dinner because it's the same thing that you've already planned. Yeah, exactly. And just get different tacos or get pizza from a different mm-hmm. place. Sometimes it's Domino's. Sometimes it's like a nicer wood fired place or whatever. Sometimes we just make our own. It's always pizza, but you just get different pizza. Have you ever done grilled pizza? I have. <sighs> yes. Um, yeah, I got really into trying to make my own pizza dough for a little while. And then I was buying some Godot and I don't know, but I did do it on the grill. It was pretty awesome. Robbie, grilled pizza. I have not. I don't have a great grill right now, so I don't know how that would go. You got to like get yourself invited to a summer barbecue, you know, start thinking now, scope out which friends have grills and then just randomly show up with pizza dough Mm. instead of like, you know, burgers or or hot dogs dogs. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, what's up? We're grilling pizza. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you've done this before. And you say no. But. I'm a senior web developer and I have confidence that I can navigate <laughs> ambiguous situations. Yeah. I looked it up on Stack Overflow and they said, you can <laughs> grill it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm doing it. Uh, I have a grill and you could even come in the winter if you want. True. I mean, I have a grill, yeah. but it's like, oh, we had a built in grill at the last house. I was like, why don't we have a grill now? So we sold the grill before because we had a built in one. And now we have like a tiny like camp grill. Um, so like it would work probably, mm. but not as well. Be a little harder. You got to get it really hot. So mm-hmm. that's the key. Cause you want it to be kind of like a pizza oven is, and those are like 500 plus degrees. Yeah. I don't think this little camp grill is going to do that. It might <laughs> melt before you get, before you get there. They yeah. can melt. I think <laughs> you take them yeah. too hot. Coleman's aren't meant to to grill pizzas. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. They do have portable, like portable-ish, like smaller pizza ovens, though. I've seen them a bunch online recently and had a, like, I got somebody I'm working with on the current client uh, got one and posted pictures of the results. And it, it was respectable. 
I would suggest it. I think they're like $400. If it's something you want to do regularly, it's probably oh. worth it because it looks good. It looked yeah, really you know good. How many, how many pizzas I could just have brought to me? For four hundred dollars, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it is. It's in the joy of the making things, though. Like, yeah, I also yeah, do so like you... quite a bit of baking and cooking, and like it's fun. Were you one of those that were successful in bread and dough and sourdough and all that stuff during prime oh, pandemic times? I had the best setup, which is that my significant other made incredible sourdough, and mm. I just got to <laughs> eat it. So. Um, amazing amazing i get to fail a lot over many weeks with that it's very frustrating it took a while it took a while to get going i think there was there had been one or two total failed attempts uh long before we were all stuck inside our houses um that were preparatory for succeeding this most recent time but yeah like sourdough that's the source of the grilled pizza is the homemade sourdough Rest. Oh, it's English so good. muffins. Oof, yes, I made those a couple of times too. Yeah, they're a lot of work though. Yeah, they are a lot of work. Crumpet. You can just do crumpets, which is like easier versions of it. But yeah, the whole thing was a lot of work, and I think that's why I just scrapped that career. <laughs> I'm not a senior baker. <laughs> this is what I found out. <laughs> so, are you from Boston or like that area? No. No, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Ohio, and I came oh. out to Boston. I worked an internship here and it was the first big city. I mean, Boston's still kind of a smaller city. It really depends on who you talk to, whether they say Boston's a big city. I think it's a big city. It was the first one I've been to uh, by kind of like off on my own. And I just loved it here and was always kind of looking for an opportunity um, to come out this way. And at the moment, I have slight regrets because I don't know if you could here in the background but there is a lot of snow blowing <laughs> happening outside and like winter's kind of kicking my butt at the moment so every year i'm like why do i live where the wind hurts my face yep and then summertime comes and i'm like this is the best place in the whole united states to be let's stay here forever <laughs> right yeah it is really pretty definitely i uh so i used to work for a company base there called aquia I would mm-hmm. go out there a couple times a year. And um, I also have some friends who live in Hull. So you take that ferry over, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've been there a bunch. I used to live in D.C. too, which is a nice blend because it's like not as cold. Although I guess you wonder in the summer because the summer you're like, why am I sweating? I just walked outside three seconds ago. Because they built everything on a swamp. So, yes. Yeah. Current. Yeah. High humidity. We have low humidity here in the desert, so I can live with that a little more um so i'm actually from midwest as well like the northern kentucky uh mm-hmm. right across basically cincinnati yeah yeah i went to school in cincinnati oh yeah mm-hmm. like college or high school or college you went to uc mm-hmm. i sure did so did i oh wow that's awesome. so funny fellow bearcat yep yeah it's fun i started in 1995 we did not overlap in our studies unless you went back for another degree. <laughs> Turns out, no. Small world, though. That's cool. Yeah, I liked it there. I uh, When I graduated, all my friends, I was thinking, oh, I kind of like it here. And all my friends were like, we're going other places. I'm like, well, I guess I'll go other places, too, if all my friends are leaving. And then most of them stayed for at least five years after. It's like, 
What gives? You lied. Yeah. You tricked me. It's cute, though. I love Cincinnati. They like the chili. You like the chili? There's a... Oh, I do. Yes. I mean, I grew up on that stuff, but uh, maybe that... I just tell people it's not chili. If anyone, any of our listeners are unfamiliar with Cincinnati chili, you take spaghetti. And then you make something that's kind of like sloppy joe, ground beef in a sauce. But then the sauce has chocolate and cinnamon. Cinnamon. (laughs) And then you put it over the spaghetti. And then to hide your crimes... You pile it with cheese, <laughs> as much cheese. So much as cheese. The biggest can thing of cheese. To obscure that you have this like strange yep. pasta dish. Mm-hmm. And then you don't swirl the with a fork. Mm-hmm. You like cut it with the side of your fork <laughs> from the edge. And so I will say that I do enjoy Cincinnati chili the last time. I was in the Midwest. I did go find some Cincinnati chili and I did enjoy it. But like whenever I talk to people about it, I'm like, listen, I know it says the word chili on it. And I just need you to forget that word. <laughs> Set aside those preconceived notions. This is a strange pasta dish. <laughs> <laughs> it, it It is weird. But also it was also normal for us to. So like at uh, so this is like the big boys in the Midwest, or at least we had there were the Frisch's big boys. And they would serve normal like bean chili, like Texas bean chili on top of spaghetti also and just call it chili Mm. spaghetti. Or you have like chili mac, which was just like macaroni noodles with chili in it. All right. That I I did have that a lot. Yeah. So like, you know, chili noodles isn't that crazy. So there's like Cincinnati chili apparently has like a Mediterranean Middle Eastern uh, influence of spices. And that's kind of Mm -hmm. what it was invented from. Hmm. So it is more like of a chili sauce. So if you have like a chili dog, it's kind of like that. But then the chili is like sweet, spicy. Yeah, it is delicious. Yeah. And it is a cocoon of cheese on either the hot dog or the spaghetti. And that's just part of the nuance. It's almost like, okay, so I always say, that, especially in the Midwest, that like the staple food is casseroles. So it's almost like a spaghetti mm. casserole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could I could get by that definition. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's that many casseroles out here. I can say I, I, I've like never gone to somebody else's house and they were like, what's up? I made casserole <laughs> unless we really unless we really extend <laughs> casseroles to include lasagna. Yeah, I have gone to people's houses where they had lasagna, but like technically Italian casserole, right? It's in a casserole yeah, dish. Yeah. You know, just this idea of like we're going to take like cream of something soup mix and then mix it together and then spread something on top. Yeah. It just yep. doesn't happen out here. And like, yeah, I. Or people do it and they don't talk about it. I don't, I don't know. Like, Hide your I made, shame. Yeah, I've made some. Every once in a while, I get really hungry for some of that food. I made my 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 coworkers once some uh, mid-Oreo pie, which is a very, very exciting thing. Crushed Oreos, make like a graham cracker crust. Then you mix like cool whipped cream cheese and more Oreos. Uh, spread it all in. Put it in the fridge for at least a day. And it's amazing and everyone was like what is this and they took like tiny little slices and they didn't eat more and i was just like this is a cultural mismatch that (laughs) i have experienced yeah yeah i mean i definitely moved away one of the reasons was i was like all of the food here that we like to eat is not going to result in any kind of long life for me (laughs) 
uh, you yeah. know, like I just went to White Castles too much, uh, you know, in Cincinnati or like in Northern Kentucky is an interesting blend because you have like a lot of Southern food. I grew up with a lot of Southern food, but then you have like this hearty Midwest stuff too. And then the German influences and it's just was like, I think in the West they eat a lot of salads. I'm going to go there <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> I don't have to mix this up, but I do love all of that stuff. So Yeah. Like if someone made a indulgent pie, I would be like, yes, I'm going to have that. I'm not going to make it myself, but I'm definitely going to have some when it's there. I'm going to have some tuna casserole with potato chips on top. Because that's <laughs> that a thing. one was not one of my favorites. Oof. It's amazing. It's good. It's one of my favorites <laughs> currently still. It's just a special occasion thing, though. Yes, yeah. you like mix tuna, egg noodles, cream of mushroom soup, if you want to get healthy, you throw some peas in there uh, and cheese. And then you bake that. And then at the and the end, you crunch up lays at the end and then like toast them on top. That's like I have a recipe from my grandma that's beef noodle casserole. And it's like the same thing, but without the chips. Mm. And it has beef instead of tuna. But very similar. The, chi- the chips are necessary. <laughs> highly necessary. Well, sort of like green bean or a green bean casserole. Right? Right. It's like cream of mushroom. Mm-hmm. Also green beans. Those like crunchy yeah. onions. Fancier than chips. It is. Yeah. The theme I think here is cheese. There's definitely always cheese in some way involved. Mm-hmm. And grandparents had tubs of lard mm-hmm. when they were making things. So it was highly necessary. Yeah. Every recipe my grandma had like started with like, get out your jar of bacon grease and like start with that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you just have a jar of bacon grease. <laughs> I have a, a container of bacon grease. I save it and I also use it in cooking. Nice. So can't uh, can't shake that for me sometimes. All of this food talk, uh, I probably should go get myself and my very pregnant wife some dinner. So uh, <laughs> I guess we'll... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we'll, segue we'll wrap is. up here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you liked it, please subscribe. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.